It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This week's episode is the second in a series based on an interview we conducted with McCuller scholar Carlos Dews on June 19th of 2020. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Um, you edited both volumes of the Library of America's complete works of Carson McCuller's, um, The Unfinished Autobiography, Illumination and Night Glare, and you are currently working on the letters. Uh, you want to talk some about that project? about how it's going and what you might have yeah. discovered? Well, it's uh, uh, it's going, I can say. I, uh, you know, COVID-19 has gotten me a bit behind um, because I've had so many more responsibilities at my university and less time uh, to be working on the letters than I had, had hoped. But um, the uh, all the initial stages of the work on the collection are, uh, are now finished. I have found every letter that I think um, that anyone knows about anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. I still have a couple of leads for some collections where there might be some of her letters, but I think they're unlikely uh, to be there. And I can say I, um, in my spreadsheet, I was looking at it uh, earlier today, um, I have uh, searched in 167 different collections uh, for letters of, of hers. And most of those 167 are ones in which letters are actually found. There are only a few that didn't, uh, that didn't have any. Um, and all the letters have now been transcribed. They're all, you know, in uh, Word documents. And now the heavy lifting begins where I'm going back through them all and having to make the really difficult decisions of what warrants going into the volume and what doesn't. Because uh, Houghton Mifflin, the Harcourt, the publisher, have given me, uh, by the contract I signed with them, 600 pages, 600 yeah. manuscript pages of letters. And I probably have maybe 1,800 uh, letters. Um, so I'm going to have to, it's probably going to be at least half the letters will have to uh, not make it into, uh, into the mm-hmm. volume. So it's, this, this is the really difficult part now. So I'm going through letter by letter and uh, making my first call of, does this warrant going in? Does this warrant uh, 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 being eliminated from the, from the collection? Um, if you want, I can talk about one, because I love the sort of human side of uh, this kind of scholarly work, especially biographical work, because you make contact with people, you know, that you never would uh, uh, otherwise. It's always been that way with my uh, uh, work on McCullers. And, you know, word got out that I was working on editing uh, her selected letters, and I got an email out of the blue from a professor, a retired professor at Syracuse named John Crowley, uh, who has written mostly on uh, alcoholism in literature. Uh, and because of that, he has written about Marty Mann, who was uh, one of the first women involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I get this email out of the blue, and he said, I hear you're working on the letters of Carson McCullers. He said, do you know about the brown envelope in the Marty Mann papers at Syracuse University? And I said, no, what do you, what do you mean the brown envelope? And he said, in Marty Mann's papers at Syracuse University, there is a brown envelope, uh, and across the, uh, the envelope it says, do not open. Uh, and they were included when her papers went to Syracuse, and no one had opened them until he was doing research uh, on Marty Mann and opened them. And there are a set of letters that Carson wrote to Marty Mann uh, and they can only be described as love letters, very passionate, very, very heartfelt uh, love letters uh, to Marty Mann. 
And although Marty Mann had been mentioned in the previous biographies of McCullers, it was always in relation to Alcoholics Anonymous because Carson's sister Rita was involved in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and knew uh, Marty Mann. And, and uh, at one time, Carson had put Reeves in touch with Marty Mann so that Marty Mann could uh, hopefully get Reeves into Alcoholics Anonymous. But there was never any mention of uh, a relationship between the, the two of them. And um, uh, Carson had spent time at the houses of uh, Marty Mann and her very long-term partner, who was editor at Vogue magazine named Priscilla Peck. So Priscilla Peck and Marty Mann were a couple and were for, I think, maybe 40 years or longer. And Carson had visited them. They had a house on uh, uh, Fire Island in New York. And I think they had a house, they had an apartment in New York where she had also spent time. She was just friends with them. But these letters revealed that she and Carson had had a, a brief relationship uh, when she and Reeves were married and when Priscilla uh, Peck and uh, Marty Mann were together, and that Marty Mann tried to figure out a way to stop uh, you know, Carson's uh, affections. Mm -hmm. And these are the letters that Carson wrote to Marty Mann. Marty Mann had Carson destroy her letters. So Marty Mann's letters to Carson, Carson mm -hmm. uh, destroyed. Uh, but Carson's letters to Marty Mann, uh, and this I think is one of the interesting finds uh, that I've come across in the process of putting the letters, uh, letters together, which is something that biographers haven't written about. Marty Mann's biographer, there's a biography, a biography of Marty Mann, and in it, they talk very briefly about how at one time Carson McCullers had a crush or something mm -hmm. uh, similar to the way they had uh, described it, and that it took a great deal of effort on Marty Mann's part to convince Carson that she wasn't going to leave her partner so many years to uh, to be with Carson. But that's the only mention of this ever. But these mm -hmm. letters are, and they're, I have to say, they're heartbreakingly beautiful letters. Mm -hmm. They really are, that these letters yeah. that Carson had written uh, to, uh, to Marty Mann. But that's just one of, you know, 300 interesting stories that are going to come out of uh, these letters when they see the light of day in about two years. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Um, well, it, it's also uh, that moment when you uh, discovered uh, the um, unfinished autobiography at the Ransom Center. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, that's that's yeah. one of the great you know discoveries in McCullough's studies. So yeah, well, well, thanks for saying that, uh, Nick. Um, I was a graduate student by that point at the University of Minnesota. So strangely enough, I was there at the University of Texas as an undergrad. Never knew that McCullough's papers were you know mm. next door to where many of my classes were held the four years I was there. I go to graduate school at the University of uh, Minnesota, only discover that all these materials were down in Texas. And so I got a grant from the graduate school because it was nearing the end of my graduate studies and I knew I wanted to write something on the colors. So I traveled down there on a grant from the University of Minnesota Graduate School um, and just wanted to sort of take a look at all the papers. Um, and I know that Virginia Spencer Carr uh, had accessed some of those papers, and she had written in her biography of McCullers about this famed unfinished autobiography. Mm -hmm. uh, but you get the impression from uh, Carr's biography that it was, you know, 20 pages or something, that it was just some very preliminary attempt. So when I got there, uh, Kathy Henderson, who was the director of the manuscripts division at the time, um, I told her, well, I want to see this manuscript. And uh, she said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, it's a manuscript that she supposedly wrote of her autobiography that uh, has never been published. And she said, well, let's see. And we looked in the card catalog, and it literally was card files uh, still at that time. Yeah. Uh, and it was just unfinished manuscript, illumination, and night glare. And I don't think it even had the number of pages. And so she brings back 
this really hefty uh, folder that was almost 200 pages. Um, mm. And I sat down and started reading this and I couldn't believe that no one had ever used this, had, had called mm -hmm. upon this uh, for anything before. And Kathy said, well, no one's asked about it. No one's sat down to, to look at it. Um, and uh, no one had certainly realized how important it, it uh, could be. Um, and like you said, it, from that day until it actually was published was about nine years, I think, because it took me many years to convince the estate to let me, uh, to let me do it. <laughs> yes, well, not surprised to hear about that part, but anyway, we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. Um, insert war letters here, she had said, right? Yes, exactly. Um, well, this is really interesting to me because, you know, you've read the Jen Chaplin book. She, she mm -hmm. read the uh, letters uh, that Carson wrote to um, uh, the woman whose name I suddenly can't remember in, in Switzerland. Um, I remember Marie, uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you read these uh, letters that she wrote to Marty Mann, and yet she wants inserted the letters that she and Reeves um, exchanged. What, what do you make of that? Well, first of all, it's it's a lot of good writing, and you know her side of that correspondence will be in this collection of letters that I'm writing uh, um, yeah. as well. And I think, you know, I'm just second guessing her uh, at this point. But first mm. of all, the writing is very good on yeah. both their parts, and in, and to be perfectly frank. Reeves writing in his letters to her are better than her letters uh, to him. Just it's to probably him. his, it's probably his great work. You know, he wanted yeah. to be a writer and to me that that's it right there. And certain of those letters, when he's describing uh, the, the battle uh, scenes and the, the situation there, it's some of the most vivid writing about yeah. that particular period of, of which there is a lot of writing. I know. I know. And so it's pretty amazing. But anyway, yeah. you, and I remember saying. there's, there's, there's one form letter they gave all the soldiers who were getting ready for the D-Day landing. He landed uh, mm -hmm. on one of the beaches on, on D-Day. Um, they gave form letters to all the soldiers, and they could just fill out to whom it's from and some kind of salutation and have it ready uh, uh, to, be, to be sent. And I remember seeing that letter and being so moved by, by thinking about him being as difficult as his life was and as complicated as it already had been and was going to be... Uh, you know, and he would only live maybe six or seven years after writing uh, uh, those letters before he committed suicide. Um, just how poignant that uh, moment was, him sitting on, I think he was on the USS Alabama, may have been the ship, or no, he was on the USS Texas, I think. Mm. Um, uh, and writing this letter, not being able to reveal what was about to happen the next day, uh, but, but you know, filling in this form letter and sending it off uh, to Carson. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I think you're right. It really is his legacy. Unless we can find the, the high school newspaper writing he did back in Wetumpka, uh, yeah. Alabama, when he was in high school, it really is his, his sort of literary legacy, despite the fact that he uh, apparently wanted to be a writer. He left very, very little behind. Have you ever been told the story that David Diamond told about Reeves' writing? I don't know if you've uh, uh, I've seen it. some things, but I... Uh, well, you know, briefly, Reeves lived with uh, the composer David Diamond up in Rochester, New York, right. where David yeah. lived and where David taught at the Eastman School. And uh, he said he would leave every day and go to the university and would leave Reeves there. He had set up Reeves a little studio in the attic of uh, his house. He would leave Reeves there you know, to do his writing. Reeves was going to mm -hmm. finally have the space and the time uh, and freedom uh, to become the writer he wanted to be. And said he, he would come back and he assumed Reeves had been writing away all these days. 
And one day he comes home and he goes up the um, uh, attic stairs. And when his head comes up above flow level and he sees Reeves, Reeves had, was sitting at his writing desk with a bottle of whiskey and all the pages that he had written that day, he had torn into tiny little pieces and was eating them and washing them down with whiskey. Wow. Uh, well, and, I mean, hard, it's hard, as we say here. Yeah, it may be why we have so few, you know, we have no creative work <laughs> by Reeves whatsoever, but it he may be them. that he just found it that torturous and that difficult or was that hypercritical or whatever would motivate him uh, uh, to do that. But David Diamond told me that sitting in his house in Rochester, uh, that wow. story. Well, you know, I mean, again, we're just speculating, but, but one thing that you can imagine is that uh, you know, he and Carson had this plan. They were going to both be writers. And I think that neither one of them was prepared for what a splash Carson's work was going to make. You know, she became instantly famous and was the literary darling, um, you know, of New York, uh, especially. And I just wonder if he just felt like, well, it's, it doesn't live up to that. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't reach that high mark. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I teach uh, The Heart is Lonely Hunter, I always have to stress to students that when Carson published that novel, she had no idea it was gonna be as successful as it was. Because in retrospect, you can think, oh, well, she must have known that it was gonna be this great success. She had no idea it was gonna be as successful as it was and change her life and fulfill a number of her dreams, You know, being able to leave the South and never have to return, for, for example. She had no idea that that was gonna be the case. Writers don't yeah. know that when they finish a book, but, uh, uh, how it's going to, to to be received. Also, I tell them when we get to the end of the novel that she had no idea when writing the novel, nor her characters in the novel knew that within a week of the end of that novel, World War II was going to start because the mm -hmm. novel ends the last week of September uh, before the Germans invaded Poland a week later. Yeah, wow. Um, I ask you... This week's readings are from the letters exchanged between Carson and Reeves McCullers in November of 1944. Nyack, New York, November 21st, 1944. Reeves, Angel, this morning the first snow of the year has come. The whirling, light wildflakes are at the window. The rivers veiled and only a deserted brown little house with two red chimneys is there by the river's edge, looking more lonely than ever. I have been out in the streets, but the snow doesn't stick, and the alley ash pits and wet sidewalks are very desolate. These are the times we loved together. Do you remember, darling, the first snow at the McKeithens, the way it piled up soft and blue, on the porch outside and how we walked around the cemetery and later went out in the automobile and drank beer. We always made a festival of our first snows. It's so lonely without you, this first snow. I still have no letter. I'm grown sickeningly anxious. I wait and there's no word. The radio tells of the new offensive and I hunt for some news of the 28th in all the newspapers. Perhaps there will be a letter in the afternoon mail. I spent the weekend in town and came out late Sunday and Aunt T was still here. 
I stayed the night with the Morrises, but we all had a great party over at Kay's. Karen Michaelis was there, and Canto and Louise Rayner. You remember her in The Good Earth. And James Laughlin of The New Directions, and altogether quite a gathering. Adita Morris brought the food over to Kay's, as she was in the middle of moving to a new house. We had lobster and Swedish food and quantities of some strong drink that was kept on the table in big pitchers. We sat down to the table at six and stayed there, except for changes of seats, until about two or three o'clock. I hadn't been to such a party for years, and I must say it was fun for a change, but I kept missing you and wishing for you. I think you would have liked it. The next morning, I went back over to Kay's and she was alone in the hollow house with the three babies. I felt sad when I left her. But it's not very good for me to go into town often. It breaks the thread of work. And you know I'm not much of one for parties, except rarely, and when I know that work has been done. The snow is getting thinner, finer. It's cold, and the sky has cold blue tones in it. The snow melts to water on the windowpane, and the wind rattles the casements. If you were here, we would have a cozy drink together and play a game of chess. The next first snow, I feel that we can be together. This one I'll just try to ignore. I'm worried and too sad. Take care of yourself, darling. Always your Carson. Twenty-two November, nineteen forty-four, Germany. My dearest one, it is a cold, rainy, bitter Thanksgiving Eve where I am. Yesterday there was snow, but it has turned to slush. What a happy time Thanksgiving weekend used to be. Do you remember? When I was a child, there was not just the mountains and surfeit of good food, but there were special games. And then one could be gone all Friday and Saturday by oneself in the woods, roaming and exploring. The weather seemed to have been different in those days clear and cold and bright. There is not much we poor, miserable remnants of humanity here have to be thankful for, except the mere fact that we are still alive. But even that has reached proportions of gruesome humor. It is a joke on German artillery to be alive. It is a little strange and funny to be doing something as normal as writing a letter for in the next instant, one's brains and bones may be scattered by a delayed action shell all over the cellar in which we are staying today. This is the most hellish any of us have seen, even the old soldiers. The din outside is unimaginable. Small arms fire crackles like raindrops. The dead of both armies and all nations are scattered all about. 
you can't see any place where there isn't a shell hole. In what was a fair-sized town, there is one building left with walls. For two days, there has been, right outside the door, a dead German from whose flank a cat eats two or three times a day. Then it strolls down the steps sedately to be petted. This irritates the men, and one will pick it up by its tail and throw it squalling back out where the hell is flying. Once, the cat went over and curled up under the German's arm to sleep. It has a charmed life and will probably live longer than any who has watched its actions the past 48 hours. Suddenly, there is an unearthly silence for 5, 10, 20 minutes. Then a jeep is seen or someone down the line moves or sticks his head out and the whole goddamn German army opens up. Then our artillery and fire opens up and the 4th of July is on again. This is the phase of war which statesmen say takes the cream of manhood of a nation. All the men from a county, commune, or burger can be wiped out in 10 minutes. This is the war that gets directly to everyone. You see dead civilians scattered in fields, along roads, along with soldiers. A house with a roof is a rare thing. It reminds one of Goya's paintings and drawings of the Spanish Wars. For all, there is dirt, mud, cold, and extreme fatigue. With all, there is extreme fear. For the weaker ones, death is a release. The stronger ones fight and hold on until the mind no longer communicates with the body. A few days ago, General Eisenhower released a heartening statement. From it, one can hope the war will be over by the first of the year. The German army is almost beaten and will collapse when it gets beyond the Rhine and has to give up Prague. Even here, where are supposed to be the remaining crack troops, the morale of the individual soldier in the army is poor. Our average soldier would not think of surrendering unless it meant sacrificing his and others' lives. They even dread capture. But the average German looks for the opportunity of giving up. They creep through the lines every night to surrender. However, that doesn't mean that there are not those who will fight to the death the pitchfork civilians and 10- and 12-year-old kids operating mortars do not give us concern. That is strictly bullshit propaganda. It was good to see my old outfit the other day. Many of the men are still living. They miss me and talk of me. It's rather ironical that since Brecht, they have seen no action, while we have been continually busy the men I have are good and tried soldiers and brave. During the night, most of us are out in foxholes, but during the day we can pull back into the cellar of what was a house. Right now, some are sleeping and resting and rubbing each other's feet. There is such a danger here of freezing and losing one's hands or feet. Others are sitting at the table around a feeble light with me, riding home or eating K-rations, bitching, wisecracking, and gossiping. 
Now and then, one comes out with a terribly funny story. Everyone stops, looks around suspiciously, and laughs. Then the shelling in hell outside doesn't matter a tinker's dam. Darling Carson, I have written only about things that go on here, for that's all I can think about. That's all there is for me right now. I am not one to write a last letter to be mailed to you if I am killed. In the first place, I have said all the last things to you. In the second place, there is no one here to leave such a letter with, for if I get it, he will probably also get it. I am sure that last letter business occurs only in World War I novels and concerns only young British officers and privates. Any last words would be simply, I have known you and loved you dearly. Knowing and being with you and loved by you is the greatest and most beautiful thing in life. I don't think there has ever been another person like you. I would want to spend all the days of my life near and with you. It may be that many more of our days will be spent together. But we are both strong and can live within ourselves. It may be the secret of our relationship that we can do this. We would miss each other terribly for some time to come, but there would also come recovery. Others with great love lose each other and are brave about it. If it comes to us, we will be the same. Be kind and gentle as you always are. Try to see and cause all the beauty in life that is possible. A pleasant Christmas and a peaceful year in 1945 for all of us. As ever, Reeves. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCuller Center's Weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCuller Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCuller's 100th birthday on February 19, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music used during the readings for today's episode includes Antonin Dvorak's Cello Concerto in B Minor, performed by the Schwab Philharmonic under the direction of Professor Paul Hostetter, and also Otterina Respighi's Church Windows, performed by the Schwab Wend Ensemble under the direction of Dr. Jamie Nix courtesy of the Schwab School of Music. Carson McCullers' letter to Reeves McCullers was read by Susie Parker-DeVoe, and Reeves' letter to Carson was read by our host, Nick Norwood. <laughs>